It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 283 for March 11th, 2012. This week, Lightroom 4 hits another home run for Adobe. Questions and answers about replacing a computer. And in short circuits, the new Adobe iPod updates everything. And Android Market becomes Google Play. More magic from Adobe with Lightroom 4. Lightroom occupies a space at the intersection of amateur and professional photography. For professionals, it's a superb workflow organizer. It can also provide enhancements that all raw-mode digital photographs need. It may eliminate the need for further editing, but when more work is needed on the image, Lightroom works well with Photoshop. For amateurs, Lightroom is the most robust application shy of the full and much more expensive Adobe Creative Suite. Lightroom 4 is a major release, adding significant new capabilities and innovations. New adjustment controls maximize dynamic range from cameras, recovering exceptional shadow details and highlights. The software features new and improved auto adjustments to dynamically set values for exposure and contrast, and additional local adjustment controls including noise reduction, moiré suppression, and white balance correction. I particularly like the improvements made in the light control menu. In version 3, you had sliders for exposure, which of course controlled the overall exposure, for recovery, increasing that restored detail to highlight areas when possible, fill light, that reduced the darkness of shadows by apparently shining light into the darker areas, and blacks. You couldn't reduce the blacks, but you could add intensity to create a deeper black. In version 4, the controls have been modified and regrouped. Exposure and contrast are together. Exposure, of course, handles the overall exposure still. It is coupled with contrast, which increases or decreases the amount of contrast. The other four more specific controls are grouped, and each allows the user to increase or decrease the setting that's being adjusted. The key to this new versatility is exactly that. Highlight and shadow sliders adjust the light and dark midtones of the image. That's where most of the detail is. White and black sliders adjust the lightest and darkest parts of the image. And in both cases, again, you can increase or decrease, not just increase the darkness or decrease the brightness. You can go either way on both of those controls. Lightroom 4's output options have been strengthened considerably with the addition of an option to create photo books. If you want to email a photo, you can now do that easily and directly from within Lightroom using nearly any email account. There's also a map module that allows you to specify where an image was created so that it can interact with geolocation features. The addition of still limited video support allows photographers to play, trim, and extract frames from video clips that can be created on digital SLRs, point-and-shoot cameras, and smartphones. Video output can be exported in the popular H.264 format, 
and published to Facebook or Flickr. In this version, video editing is limited, but enhancements are planned for future versions of Lightroom. As with most photography shows, here's where I have to say, you've just got to go to the website to see what I'm going to show you. I can't describe these. Some samples of Lightroom 4's capabilities. They're all before and after images. Sometimes the before image is on top, sometimes it's on the left. Sometimes there are before and after images, the full image, set side by side. You'll see that when you go to the website. The first image I wanted to work with had some candles in it, with flames. Flames, of course, are extremely bright. And there was a table, a dark table, dark wood table. Well, I was able to improve the color and contrast considerably. I pulled back some detail from the flames. As you'll see when you take a look at the before side, the candle flame and a large area around it are blocked up. Just no way to bring back any detail in the areas that have gone completely white. But the difference is obvious where there actually was some detail to bring back. Note, too, the more vibrant colors and the better surface color on the table. Image number two is a picture of a pie, and it again has color and contrast improvements from hazy and gray to vibrant and white. One thing that many people don't know about creating images with a camera's raw setting is this. You will need to increase the clarity and contrast unless you want the image to appear flat. This is by design. The raw image gives you everything the sensor sees. This is reminiscent of the differences between amateur and professional films that Kodak made. Remember Kodak? Professional films recorded more muted colors and could handle a higher dynamic range. Amateur films had more punch and saturation right out of the box. Lightroom 4 lets you take that professional film-like raw image and adjust it so that it really looks great. I took a picture of some cookies at a Thanksgiving dinner. The cookies were way too dull. This was partly a result of starting with a raw image, but the lighting I used was also very flat. A little bit of work from Lightroom 4, and those cookies looked a lot more tasty. We had a little handmade turkey, a bit underexposed. The image had a relatively limited depth of field. I couldn't really do much about that, but I did apply some sharpness that simulates slightly better focus, and the colors are more vibrant. You'll see a picture of my younger daughter's cat, Nico. She's a black and white cat, or in the before picture, a black and yellow cat. Well, she's not a yellow cat, she's white. So, I fixed the light, made the cat white and black, and added a little detail in her fur by increasing the sharpening. Similar to a white cat with no detail was a cup full of mayonnaise or pudding or something. It was white. The original had very little detail in the pudding or whatever it was. Maybe it's sour cream. Doesn't matter. I pulled the overall exposure down just a bit, added some sharpening, and boosted the saturation. The result? Detail in the white area. We had some homemade bread. It had a rather ugly color cast. Getting rid of that was quick and easy. Same thing with an entire plate full of food. Moving on from Thanksgiving, I had an image of the late Phoebe cat, just a snapshot. She was sitting on top of a camera case, and in the background there was a bookshelf, and beside the bookshelf, an open window. Through the open window, a lot of sunshine. Sunlight is very blue. The room light was very yellow. By the time I made the cat white, the background light was very blue and extremely hot. Again, just a little bit of work 
and I took care of the mixed light in the back and the far too overexposed area in the back, and just for grins I added a little detail to Phoebe's white fur. You'll find a couple of pictures from the Columbus Zoo, from the Zoo Lights thing that they do around the end of the year. The sky was washed out in the image. It was taken just slightly before sunset. So a little work from Lightroom 4, and the water looks much, much better. You'll also see a picture of a penguin, but I'll skip that and just let you see the difference for yourself. The next image was a picture of a tree with lights in it. The sky appeared to have no color. It was just gray. But there was some color there. Tinkering with the controls revealed an electric blue sky. And I think it's a lot more interesting with that blue sky. I also took some pictures of the lights at the zoo by zooming the lens and rotating the camera while I was taking a relatively long exposure. Sort of a modern art kind of effect. But the colors were too weak, too wimpy. So I added some contrast, some sharpness, and some saturation. The background is now black, and the colors are vibrant. I had a picture of one of our orange cats sitting in the sunshine. He looked not quite orange enough. A little quick work, adding just a little bit of boost to the orange slider, improves the looks of the cat quite a bit. And I had a picture of Chloe Kitty. She has green eyes. I wanted to emphasize those eyes, so I boosted the green saturation. I also increased detail, added a graduated density filter in the background to decrease the overhot highlights, and pumped in a little fill light to boost detail in the shadows. But I also wanted to see what Lightroom 4 could do with some challenging images, so I started with an image that I took nearly 10 years ago. The camera was horrid by today's standards, although pretty good at the time. It had low resolution. The long side of the image was only 1600 pixels. The JPEG image was already compressed and pretty badly. I was shooting a subject backlit by a bright sky. What else could be against this image? The before and after images you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website show you the kind of images you can make even when you start with a less than ideal image. But wait, there's a power pole growing out of my older daughter's head, and a bunch of wires around her, and a light growing out of her arm. Well, this can be fixed. Lightroom isn't really a good choice for this kind of repair, but something else that Adobe is working on is. And I'll be able to tell you about that in a future program, so stay tuned. Maybe you're wondering just how much this magic costs. The price has dropped. The full version for new users will sell for about $150, and upgrades from previous versions will cost about $80. If you recently purchased a copy of Lightroom 3, you may even be eligible for a free upgrade. System requirements, by the way, for Windows users, Vista with Service Pack 2 or later, or Windows 7 with Service Pack 1. Note that Windows XP is no longer supported. Both 32 and 64-bit versions are available. And for Mac users, you need OS 10, 10.6.8 or higher. The bottom line for Adobe Lightroom 4, 5 cats. Adobe hits another home run with Lightroom 4. Some people will be disappointed by the still limited video capabilities of Lightroom 4, but the software engineers have been plenty busy creating new ways to make your still images better. The video capabilities will almost certainly be enhanced in Lightroom 5. For more information, visit the Adobe Lightroom 4 website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website.
Bob Allen in eastern Washington state is buying a new computer, and he had some questions. He says that it's probably about twice what he needs, but that's what he always buys and eventually overwhelms its capabilities. He's keeping his monitor and printer and will be moving from Vista to Windows 7. It's a 64-bit system. That's a wise choice these days. And he plans to install his existing copies of Microsoft Office 2003 and Adobe Elements. Everything else he uses are free downloads, he says, and he also has some pretty darn good questions. Bob has an external hard drive that he uses to back up my documents, my pictures, contacts, and a few other things. But the backup drive sits beside the computer, and he understands that because it does, it's not really a backup. To quote him, a house fire would put me in a world of hurt, not just from the computer, of course. Anything Bob can store in electronic form isn't on paper, and he says that once the new system is up and running, he plans to subscribe to Carbonite. Good choice. TechBiter's opinion. It might make sense to set up the current computer on Carbonite now and then transfer the license to the new computer when it arrives, but since the new machine will arrive in less than a week, it probably won't hurt anything to continue tempting fate. Bob says he'll back up the existing computer when the new one arrives, set up the computer, copy the data files from the backup and install the various applications, choosing 64-bit versions when possible. TechBiter's comment. Your old copy of Microsoft Office will, of course, be a 32-bit version, and even Microsoft generally recommends installing the 32-bit version of Office 2010, unless you specifically need the 64-bit version's extended capabilities. It's important, though, to have 64-bit versions of device drivers, your printer, for example. When he's sure the new system is running okay, Bob plans to format the drive on the old computer. He says that he'll do that in the way that overwrites everything, not just deletes the directories. He'll then reinstall Vista. TechBiter's opinion on that is this. Formatting a drive doesn't overwrite anything. It's more secure than just deleting the files, but it's really not difficult to recover data from a formatted drive. Instead, I would recommend obtaining a file shredder application and using it. For example, you could see my article about secure delete in BootMed. That was in the February 26th program. Bob had a couple of questions about email. Number one, Vista came with Windows Mail. Windows 7 apparently doesn't. I did a quick Google search of email for Windows 7. Looks like Microsoft has a free download of a new version of Mail. Well, TechBiter's comments on that is it's webmail. Think about Gmail. If you want a real email program that maintains the email data on your computer, you might be better off converting to Mozilla Thunderbird. Windows Live Mail is also expected to be reworked shortly after Microsoft releases Windows 8 later this year, and all of the live applications will be migrated to whatever the replacement is. Bob's second question on email, I've got a lot of my filing in folders in the email program. I seem to recall a major hassle last time I changed computers. Is there an easy way to move these? TechBiter says an email program is not a filing system and should not be used as one. If you need to maintain information from emails, copy it to a database program or to an application such as Microsoft OneNote. In this case, you'll be changing not only computers, but also email programs. Some process should exist to export data from one program to another, or to import data from one program to another. These are flip sides of the same issue. Bob has a question about programs. Is there anything likely to give me grief when I install it if I installed it five years ago on the old machine and registered it? 
I don't want to spend hours on the phone with tech support after I've screwed something up. TechBiter's opinion that that begins with... Hmm. Well, there's always an opportunity for problems here. Adobe applications, for example, can run concurrently on two computers, and you need to remember to deactivate the installation on the old computer. I've heard rumors that there will be a better way to control this soon, but if you forget to deactivate an application today, you will need to contact Adobe to reset the installation counter. Most Microsoft products allow two or three installations without complaining. Technically, two is the limit in most cases, but Microsoft is good about helping users to reinstall applications when they upgrade the hardware. Other applications and publishers allow unlimited installations, open source applications for example, or they allow limited installations with easy extensions, uh, IDM's UltraEdit for example, or they may allow limited installations with no exceptions, most Adobe applications for example there. About all you can do if you run afoul of some installation limit is contact the publisher and ask to have the counter reset. Even the most restrictive publishers are usually understanding. Bob says he uses Chrome and his wife uses Internet Explorer. They both have lots of pages bookmarked. So what's the quick way to put those files on the backup drive? TechBiter says for Chrome you'll find the bookmarks in your user directory. I don't recall whether Vista uses a user's directory or retained the old documents and settings directory from XP, so you might need to look around. For Windows 7, the files you're looking for are in bookmarks and bookmarks.bak. The backup file is overwritten by the bookmarks file every time you close Chrome. Use the Vista search feature to find the files and copy the bookmarks to the backup. Microsoft, of course, calls them favorites instead of bookmarks. I would guess you have at least Internet Explorer 8, Find the Favorites button. This is the button now, not the item on the menu. The Favorites button. Click the button. To the right of Add to Favorites, you'll see a triangle that points down. Click the triangle. Choose Import and Export. Then select Export to a File. Choose the location for the file and name it. On the new machine, you follow the same process except in reverse, and you want to choose Import from a file instead of Export to File. So that makes it pretty easy. Bob wondered what to do with the old hard drive. The new computer has a one terabyte drive and he thinks he doesn't need any additional storage. Currently, he's using only 113 gigabytes on the hard drive, plus 3.8 gigabytes on the D backup partition. So, he says maybe he'll send that along with the old computer. TechBiter says, well, even though you've got the Carbonite backup, don't underestimate the value of a local emergency backup. I use Carbonite and I perform a weekly system backup that is stored at my office. But I still have two local USB hard drives that contain copies of all working projects and data files. If I delete damage or destroy one or more local files, I can usually restore them in seconds from the local drive. In the event of a catastrophic failure, I have the offsite backup and Carbonite. In addition to the quick recovery time made possible by the local drives, it can also be used as my primary drives if the desktop system becomes unusable for any reason and I have to move to a notebook computer. Circuits, the new iPad announced this week, gives users more of everything, but no really new features. 
What's interesting is that even though other tablets are available, Android for example, or coming soon, Windows, the iPad has garnered a lot of interest from Windows users, even those who don't particularly like Apple. The display approaches print quality with 264 pixels per inch, powered by the A5 chip that Apple says has quad-core graphics. Voice recognition software has been added. The camera has been upgraded. The iPad 3 will work with 4G LTE networks from AT&T, Verizon, and some foreign mobile phone systems. I may have mentioned previously that desktop and notebook computers won't be going away anytime soon because they provide capabilities that tablets cannot. But tablets also offer capabilities that are beyond the reach of notebooks and desktops. The iPad 3 is smaller and lighter than the iPad 2. Starting prices range from $400 for a basic A5 processor with Wi-Fi only, 16 gigabytes of memory, and a 1024 by 768 132 pixel per inch screen. Up to $830. That's where you get the A5X processor with Wi-Fi and 4G, 64 gigabytes of memory, and a 2048 by 1536 pixel, 264 pixel per inch screen. Google's rather boringly named Android Market will soon become the Google Play Store. In addition to the kinds of apps that have been offered since the 2008 launch, Google Play will place more emphasis on games, books, music, and video. Google Play combines disparate offerings into a single online store and aims to make searching easier. Now, Google knows a little bit about search, but the Android market has been disappointing in that regard. Google's engineering director for digital content, Chris Yerga, says the goal is to make the user experience easier and better. The primary goal, though, is clearly to siphon off some business that is currently going to companies such as Apple and Amazon. Apple's offerings are mainly centered on downloading and storing items locally, while Google's business model is a more internet-based one. For example, the Picasa function that, for free, or maybe $5 a year, makes all of your digital photographs available on an Android device. If you rent music, video, or books from Google, and it is a rental, they are available on any of your Android devices, but only when you're paying for them. On Apple or Amazon devices, the user must download the content to each device, but Apple devices make your content available anywhere, even if there's no Wi-Fi connection and you continue to have the material if you no longer use the company's services. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.